Join me if you would, Acts chapter number 2, Acts chapter 2, we're going to continue forward in part number 2 of Peter's sermon at Pentecost, Um, and I will tell you that I struggled this week, Uh, each week I kind of try to read and try to feel where is a good stopping point uh, for this week's text moving forward, and so here's, I'm giving you a quick backstory while you're turning to locate in Acts 2. Uh, So we've kind of already introduced, uh, Peter started his message, but he hadn't got into the real body of it yet. He just kind of squelched some some critics uh, in in how he answered. And now, today, we're going to get into the real body of his message that's going to ultimately lead to 3,000 people being saved on the day that the church was born. So as I was reading this, I I guess it was Tuesday evening, and I just started reading out, and I will go and tell you the natural break... Uh, for us this morning would be verse 36. So if we were going to read, and I'm, I'm telling you this, I'm confessing, I'm chopping up the message, okay? Um, but it would really be from like 22 down to verse 36. But I knew that's way too much. So I started reading Tuesday night and Wednesday, most of the day, I think all, all day Tuesday, um, my plan was to come and preach from, since the other was too much, 22 to 32. I could find a little sub-break between... Uh, there between verse 32 and 33, I thought, okay, let's, we're, we're going to get there. Uh, but the more as I got into it, uh, it, it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And it was so daunting. I was really discouraged uh, how in the world I was going to cut all those pages by Thursday night. And finally, it was just like, don't, don't try to do that. There is so much in verses 22 and 23 uh, by themselves. And I knew that. Uh, don't try to cram this other. We'll have plenty to go over this morning that will flow right in. Uh, to that song. So here's the plan. I can't guarantee you this. The plan is verses 22 and 23 today. We did eight last week, so don't get discouraged, man. Two verses per week, 28 chapters. Okay, we thought Matthew was long. Okay, uh, we're not always going to do two verses. We did eight last week. I think next week we'll do 13, Lord willing. I think we'll do from 24 down to 36. Hopefully we'll get that all. We'll see. Um, but this morning, these two verses will be plenty. So here's the scene. Um, 120 believers in Christ are in the upper room. He is resurrected. He told them the Holy Spirit was going to be descending and the promise of the Father, the baptism of the Spirit, would be not many days. And sure enough, it was less than 10 days. The Holy Spirit came down in that room. All 120 people were filled with the Holy Spirit. All 120 people in the upper room, the followers of Christ in Jerusalem at this feast. This was a feast called Pentecost. Just hundreds of thousands of Jews have flooded into Jerusalem for this one of the three feasts. All 120 of them get filled with the Holy Spirit and they start speaking in tongues. And it's very clear they started speaking in languages they had never studied. And they obviously start coming out of the room, the house they were in, and people are hearing this happen. Those who were just local Judeans think it's just a bunch of gibberish, a bunch of noise. They think they're drunk. But those who were visiting, either for the, for the, for the feast or those who had moved to Jerusalem for, from outside lands, they're born in other lands, born far away from Israel, grew up learning other languages. They know this is not gibberish. These people are, that, that guy's talking my language. And over here, this person, she is talking my homeland. That's not gibberish. And I know they've never learned this. So what is this miracle about? So last week we saw that Peter says that this was a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy in the Old Testament, Joel chapter 2, that what was happening was an expression. I'm not going to re-preach all of that. 
Joel makes a prophecy that there's going to come a time there's going to be this pouring out of the Holy Spirit on all, on all. The fulfillment will be in the millennial kingdom, but we had like an early fulfillment 2,000 years ago uh, right here in the, in the upper room, and then that has spread throughout the church so that today all Christians, all Christians, not all the world, when we get the millennial kingdom, the whole world will have the, the Holy Spirit poured out on them. But for now, all Christians have the Holy Spirit literally poured into their body. And that was a fulfillment, a pre-early fulfillment of the ultimate fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. And what we noticed was verses 17, I'm not going to re-preach them, verse 17, 18, and 21 were all, to a degree, pre-fulfilled and partially fulfilled in the day and age that we live. We look for verses 19 and 20 to occur just before the millennial kingdom, and that is what will happen. But would you look, and you'll not see it on the screen, would you look at verse 21? Look at verse 21. So here's the last part of Joel's prophecy. Peter is saying, this time has come. This time, he says, we're in the last days. It's already here, and we are in the last days even now. Verse 21 says, and it shall come to pass that everyone, everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so Peter is preaching that, and he's saying this, what happened in the upper room, what these 120 people are doing is a fulfillment of that. We're in that time period. We're in a time period where Anybody, whoever, will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Peter's preaching, and he knows, based on verse 21, that is in place now. Anybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but only those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And he knows he's talking to a large group of Jews that are gathering, more and more are gathering. We know there's going to be over 3,000 of them present, and he knows they don't know who the Lord is. So only those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, and they can't call on the name of the Lord if they don't know who he is. And so he wants to prove who is the Lord. And with that, we read verses 22 and 23. So he's already started his message. Hey, these are not drunk. You guys think they're drunk. They're not drunk. This is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy, and he gave that prophecy now to the real body of his message, verse 22. Men of Israel, he's still no doubt projecting loudly. This is Peter preaching. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. Watch what Luke does. He's recording Peter's message and he's showing, Luke always does this, whether in his gospel and throughout Acts, he makes the gospel message very historical. It's based in history. What he's saying is this is a real man. This is a real man. Here's his name. His human name is Jesus. Here's his hometown. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you. He's telling these Jews, this man, Jesus from Nazareth, has been attested to you by God. God has attested this man to you. How? A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did. Through him, in your midst, and watch what he says, as you yourselves know, as you all know, this man Jesus has been attested to you that he is from God. God has done miracles through him. He has done mighty works. He has done wonders and signs, and you know it. He starts, that's his introduction. That then leads to verse 23. This Jesus, 
who you know is attested to be from God, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You, you all used lawless men's hands to do your dirty work to crucify and kill the one that God had clearly attested that he is sent from God because God was working through him to do mighty works, wonders, and signs. Let's begin here. I want you to take a quick note. As Peter is preaching, he's using, obviously, verse 21 as a springboard text in his mind. I, everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I've got to tell these people who the Lord is so that they can call on the name of the Lord and be saved themselves. I want them to get saved. But as he starts with his introduction about this prophecy of Joel, this Jewish audience would know enough. Now, they didn't have like you guys. They didn't have the Bible in their hand like I do or on their phone or on a tablet. But they've been taught this over and over and over, these things in the Old Testament. They didn't have 66 books. They had their books. It's 39 in our English. It wasn't 39 for them. But they had the whole Old Testament. They're taught it constantly. And they know enough about Joel's prophecy, if you want to write it down. Here's an inner question in their mind. Hold on. If Joel's prophecy is, has begun to be fulfilled, as you're saying, this is what they would be thinking. If that is true, if we're truly in the last days, then where is the Messiah? Because the Messiah should be here. If this is truly what you're saying, these people having this ability to speak in these languages is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, then the Messiah should have come. So where is the Messiah? And so Peter, knowing who the Messiah is, spends the rest of his message convincing and proving to them that Jesus is their Messiah. He is the Lord. And so he's going to start uh, preaching that. And that's going to be his, his emphasis. So as you're writing that down, I'm looking at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words of Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God. And then he starts with, this morning we're going to look at two ways. One of them is in verse 22 and one's in verse 23. How has this man been attested to us by God? And I don't know if we'll end up seeing three or if we'll end up seeing four or five ways. It depends how the verses break down. But today, today we're going to look at two out of probably four or five ways that Peter is getting across to his audience. This, this is how God has attested, confirmed, proven who his man is. Notice with me number one. Number one this morning. I'll give you a moment. I know some of you are still writing that. Um, but jump into our first point. It'll be up there in just a moment. So we'll give a few more seconds, but I'm going to move ahead. You ready? Number one, how has Jesus been validated? How has Jesus been confirmed? How did God prove, attest that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, really is the Christ? Number one, Jesus was validated by his miracles. And that's in verse 22. Jesus was validated by his miracles. Look again at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. Mighty works and wonders and signs. So let me stop, stop right there. As we hear those three words, I don't want you to think mighty works, wonders, and signs are three different things. Oh, Jesus did some mighty works, and he did some wonders, and he did some signs. I wonder what's the difference between them all. No, they're the same thing. Here's the breakdown. Mighty works is what he did. He showed his power, his supernatural God power, in literally miraculous ways 
dynamite, the dunamis, the, the power that only he has, that God power has been displayed doing miraculous things. The word wonders means the effect that it has on the, hear, on the hearers and the seers. Like we see him do this or we hear him do this and it ends up, he does the miraculous. It has an effect. It causes wonder in our hearts and our eyes toward him as we see him do this. And then the word signs means not that it's a different thing altogether, but that the miracle that causes wonder is actually pointing to something. It's pointing to a theological truth. It's pointing to spiritual truths. And the main thing that it has to do here is his identity. The word signs, in my mind, I kind of equate the first century preachers. As we go through the sermons coming up in the, in the coming months. First century preachers were constantly, heavily emphasizing how Jesus' life and death and resurrection were a fulfillment of prophecy. They were, they were fulfilling the signs. His, his life, his death, his resurrection were always pointing. This is who he is because it fulfilled that passage and that one and that one. And they were constantly bringing in the Old Testament fulfilled prophecies to base the foundation on. And this is what Peter is going to do in this sermon. You'll especially see that next week. Mighty works. Wonders. It causes wonders that are signs and they're indicating exactly who he is. Look at the end of verse 22. And we're not going to spend long in, in verse 22 this morning. But look what Peter uh, says. Mighty works, wonders, and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. As you yourselves know. You see what he did? As you, you all know it. And you know it. As he's loudly projecting. He's kind of taking a risk. Because if they didn't know it, that would be a good time for somebody to say, What are you talking about? Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? Nobody does that. Why? MacArthur helps us out here. If you want to write this down, he says, Peter's boldness was predicated on two undeniable facts. So this is going to be a real simple thought, but it's, it's a good thought. Why is Peter so bold to say, and you yourselves know this? You know this. He says, Peter's boldness was predicated on two undeniable truths. Number one, God had worked miracles through Jesus. That's undeniable. God had worked miracles through Jesus. And in two, they had seen them. They had seen them. God has worked the miracles through Jesus. These people have seen the miracles through Jesus. And that's why he says, you know this. As you yourselves know, this is true. As I read that and I see uh, Peter's words, you yourselves know. You know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of John chapter 3. Do you remember, what's the person, what's the man's name who came to Jesus at nighttime? What was his name? Nicodemus. Do you remember what he said in verse 2? He says, we know. Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees, this is early in Christ's ministry, not at the end. The Pharisees are going to grow more and more antagonistic toward Christ. But at the beginning, speaking on behalf of them, giving an insight to what's going on in, in behind closed doors in their circles... Here comes Nicodemus and says, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no man can do the miracles that you do, except God is with him. We know that you're God's man. These miracles are attesting to you. So Nicodemus is lining up exactly with what Peter is saying. So here's my point. No one refuted the miracles of Christ. They attest that he was sent from God. No one, ref never did anyone refute this. Why? All the miracles of Christ are confirmed. I can't go through them all. Can I invite you to think mentally, quickly? Lazarus. We don't know how many, but there's a lot of people that would have been aware of Lazarus. He's really sick. Lazarus is declining. He's getting worse and worse. We love Lazarus. 
They send people to Jesus. Hey, your friend is dying. You need to hurry. Jesus doesn't hurry. And then after a few days, word is sent. Hey, it's too late. Don't even worry about coming. Your friend has died. So people would know that. Then Jesus says, okay, now it's time to go. So when he arrives, I want you to remember this day, four days after he's dead, here Lazarus has been dead four days. Then Jesus comes, says, take the stone away. And he says, Lazarus, come forth. And then Lazarus comes forth. And their attitude was, why are you going to open up that tomb? His body is already decomposing. His body stinks by now. What day? The fourth day. You want to remember that for next week. The fourth day, his body is decaying. And here comes Christ. So as, as Lazarus comes out, many people would know this. This is confirmed. This isn't a bunch of people that get together. Hey, let's make up a story that... You, you died in res- me. What am I going to tell? Just, just go with it. That's not what happened. This is confirmed. This is real. I'm thinking. I read recently in my devotions. Jesus was on his way to to the Passover, and he comes through the little to the town of, of Jericho. And there's this massive throng of people who are following him. And there's this blind man. Does anybody remember his name? Starts with a B. Bartimaeus. So Bartimaeus is crying out. He's blind. Everybody knows he's blind. Jesus heals him. There's this whole throng of people that see that. Over and over, among them, in your midst, is one of the key words in verse 22. Over and over, Jesus heals people of leprosy. I mean, you're looking at that person has a skin condition. Jesus speaks or touches them. It's gone. People with a withered hand, like their hand is missing or parts of it missing or it's drawn up. Everybody has known this. Jesus touches or speaks, and all of a sudden, it's made whole. You can't just make this up. This is irrefutable. No one in Peter's audience that day would say, as he says, God has attested this man through mighty works and wonders and signs, and you know it. Nobody would say, that's a bunch of junk. It's all fake. What do you think would have happened with 3,000 Jews in that day if somebody would have said, it's all fake? What would have happened? People would have popped up all over that crowd and said, no, it's not. I'm one of them. Me too. Me too. Me. Me. My mom. My child. Over and over. My. It would just go on and on like you wouldn't dare. You'd be made a fool of. No one refuted the authenticity of Jesus' miracles. In fact, write this down. Even his enemies, even Jesus' enemies accepted his miracles were real. They never said, that's fake. You didn't just heal that guy of leprosy right there that had skin condition a while ago. That didn't really happen in front of me. <laughs> they didn't say that. that. That guy that I smelled a while ago, four days dead, you didn't really just bring him out of that tomb. They couldn't. No one would do that. So they never refuted. They never denied it. His enemies never denied it. Again, the other day I'm reading my devotions as I'm going through, and they go. I get into the crucifixion and... Jesus is on the cross. And you know what the chief priests are over there mumbling to themselves? You remember that? He saved others. Himself he can't save. Let him come down from the cross, then we'll believe. Did you catch what they're saying? They're admitting he saved others. No one ever refuted the truth and the the veracity and the authenticity of the miracles of Christ. Now what his enemies did, it'd say, well, he did it by the power of Satan. He's working. They're real, but he's doing it by the power of Satan. That is so ridiculous. Jesus never had to answer it. Everyone knew, like, 
Everything he does has the earmarks of God on it. Satan would not heal blind people and deaf people and mute people and lame people. Satan would not feed 20,000 people that are hungry. Satan would not raise the dead so that they could talk about Christ. Satan would not cast out his own demons out of people's bodies. He wants them to go into people's bodies. That's ridiculous, but that's all they could come up with is saying it was done by the power of Satan. But even the enemies had to agree. Before we hit the second point this morning, our main point, would you notice just at the end of verse 22, I've alluded to it already, mighty works, wonders, and signs that God did through him in your midst, in your midst. Watch, like in, he did it in, in your midst. He did it in your midst. And you know this. You know they're real. Have you ever been to the Dixie Stampede? Raise your hand if you've ever been there. Dixie Stampede. Um, they have multiple now. It's probably been 20 years ago. We were in Pigeon Forge. And we went to the Dixie Stampede show. It's kind of this rodeo-style show. And uh, Dolly Parton owns it. And it's put on. It's really good. I remember where I was sitting. I think I was on the north, right? So it's the south and the north. But I'm competitive. I want to win. Even though I'm a southerner, that night I wanted the north to win. All right? So we, got it. we have all these competitions. And, but in the middle of the program, they had this little skit. And they had these three wagons. So wagon one, wagon two, and the, like wagons, like you'd see on Little House on the Prairie, and each one had one horse in front of it. So each wagon had a little, little section in the back. They weren't covered, but in each wagon had a barrel, like a, like a barrel that you'd see at a rodeo, one of these barrels. And so they asked for a volunteer. So I remember we're sitting here, and over to our right, this, they came and said, oh, yeah, you. So this lady came bounding down and made her way down into the arena. They escorted her over, and they told her. I remember she had blonde hair and red dress on, and they ended up taking her over, and her job was to get in one of those barrels. And so she got in one of the barrels. And they kind of turned the barrel sideways, and everybody could see, oh, it's empty inside, and she hops inside. There's three wagons. And then they kind of rotated the order of the wagons. So if she got in the second wagon, they kind of moved it around. They did a little figure eight. You ever seen the shell game? You ever seen that? Like you ever seen somebody on the streets, got quick hands? Or if you go to a ball game, they'll do it electronically up on the screen. Can you follow the ball? What all the ball? And they'll put it under. Okay, well, they were doing the shell game. Here's the, here's the catch, though. These wagons are moving about two miles an hour. We see the lady get in the wagon. She's right there. She got in that one. Here goes the horse. All you got to do is real simple. Okay. Oh, she's back at the first spot. But they flipped it over, and it's empty. And she pops up up here. Like, what in the world? What in the world's going on? This is impossible. All right, well, there she is. Follow her again. See if you can do it again. And she goes around. It's very, very slow. And it's like, I'm assuming. Oh, she's back there again. No, she's over there. And they did this like three times. It's like blowing my mind. I'm like, what in the world? I say, Jeff, what's your point? They could only do that because we were up in the stands, and we weren't down there among them. I know what they did. I wouldn't bet my life on it. I'd bet $1,000 I know what they did. You know what they did. The lady, the volunteer was a fake. And there were three ladies with blonde hair and red dresses. That's what they were, that's what they were doing. You can figure that out. But they didn't do it. They didn't let us come down. I want to inspect these wagons. No, I don't think so. Every wagon had a little secret compartment under it. For uh, somebody else to pop out, I think you got the point. Number two. Jesus never did that. His stuff was real. And so they know this. Based on that, verse 23, Jesus was not only validated by his miracles, he was validated by his death. 
It was validated by his death. Look at verse 23. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Have you guys ever done something that you know you shouldn't have, but you let it go and you thought you were getting by with it for a while? I was five years old and I was throwing rocks because I always threw rocks. I was a rock throwing machine at five. I mean, I threw rock and I was, I was pretty accurate. Uh, I remember I got in a, a rock fight with my best friend next door and I hit him right there in the mouth from, from, from here further than here to the coffee house. I mean, I, I could throw them around. I, um, I love throwing rocks. I'd, I'd go to church. I'd, I'd be throwing rocks. My dad would come home. Why are you throwing a rock? I pay money to put the rocks in the driveway. Why are you throwing them over at the dumpster? Because I want to hit the little thing where the little arm goes in. I want to hit the little thing, and I, I just wear that thing out. Well, I'm five years old, and I missed. <laughs> I missed bad. We were throwing over this trailer, so it was a single wide trailer, and we were throwing over the length of it. And I don't know what I did. I cannot remember. I must have held on to it too long. But instead of throwing over this trailer, I threw through the window of the trailer, right through it. And I didn't tell anybody, and I don't think anybody around me told anyone. And we went off to school and acted like nothing happened. And it was all great, fun and games, until I got home, and somebody had told my dad what I had done. And I got in big trouble, and I had to pay for the window. Thankfully, I remember my granddad a few weeks ago that I told you about that gave me all of his pennies. That's what ended up paying for that window. I remember a few years later. I'm going somewhere with this. I remember a few years later. It was years after that. There was another one, a different friend that we'd play with sometimes. And I knew, uh, you know, he lived with his granddad. His granddad was, he was just, I hate to say, he was just mean. He was an ornery man. He was just, he was just angry. He was bitter. And our friend lived there. And so we want to play with him. So whenever you call on the phone you had to deal with that or if you go hey can so and so come out and play like right 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 it's just like and one day I'd had enough I'm a little kid I'm probably about eight now you know I'm, I'm mature now I'm like eight and so I went home and I know how to use my phone and I know my friend's phone number and so I and if you're under 30 you're going what is he doing okay and I did the little rotary thing and finally grandfather answered and boy I let him have it and I said Something, this, that, and the other. And then I said, you blank. And I called him a real bad name. I don't even know what the name, I didn't at the time, had no clue what the name meant. All I knew was his bad name. And I let him have it and I hung up. Once again, thought everything's great until that night. <laughs> I still don't know how he knows. My dad ends up giving me a good whipping. And I had to go back the next day and apologize to the grandfather for what I'd done. Two months Previous to this, Peter's crowd had done something, and they probably thought it's haunting their thinking, but we've moved on, right? Oh, no, no, no. You now have to deal with what you've done. Verse number 23 again. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Note this. Peter repeatedly, especially Peter, repeatedly lays the blame of the crucifixion of Christ at the feet of the Jews. He does this over and over and over. 
When you read that phrase at the end where it says, you have crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, means that your Jewish hands didn't actually carry out the crucifixion. You used the Romans, but the Romans are lawless. They're not living under, they're, they're admittedly not under the law of God. We are supposed to be under the law of God. You did it. You used their hands, but you're the ones that did it. And by the way, I'm not saying this this morning to stir up any hatred toward the Jewish nation. They are God's people, and we must love them, and we do love them, and they have been a blessing. And Jesus Christ is a Jew, and Paul is a Jew, and the early church was 100% Jewish. And these are our brothers and sisters in Christ, but those who have yet to come to faith in Christ, they are not our brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is the people that Peter was preaching to. And he always laid the blame at their feet. He never put it at the Romans' feet. He does it here in chapter 2. Just hit it quickly. Look over at chapter 3. You got your Bible? Look at chapter 3, verse 13. Again, he's talking to a large group of people in the temple on this occasion. This is chapter 3. It's separate. Look at verse 13. Peter says, The God of Abraham, the God of, of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant. God glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you, he's talking to the Jews, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. So the word had gotten back. Everybody in town knows Pilate wanted to release Jesus. He didn't want to do it, but they kept on him. And Peter is saying, it's you that has done this. Look at chapter number 4, verse number 10. He's now specifically with the 71 Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin. So here's Peter and John standing in front of 71. And Peter does not hold back because he's full of the Holy Spirit. He says, you want to know how we healed a lame man? That's why they're there. Where did you two guys get power to heal that guy? Where did you get that? Peter answers and says, let it be. He's talking to the Sanhedrin. Let it be known to all of you and to the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, you crucified the Son of God. That's not enough. Look at chapter 5. Again, the apostles, and Peter is speaking on behalf of the apostles in front of the whole Sanhedrin again. This time it's not just Peter and John. It's all of them. Look at chapter 5, verse number 30. Peter says, the God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. So Peter continuously and repeatedly puts the blame on his own people. We, you, have done this. He doesn't mean every single person that happens to be there for, for Pentecost. He's saying all of you that were there that could have had a voice in opposition but didn't, you have crucified and killed this one that has been attested by God. So follow me, because we're about to, in a moment to make a transition that will be important. Peter wants his audience to know that Jesus is the Christ. And what he's saying is, he was attested in your mind. You know this, you knew who he was. You had great suspicion, that suspicion grew into faith. He was attested by God, and yet you ended up killing him. How does that happen? And now Peter is going to stand on Pentecost and say, he's actually your Messiah. You want to know how Joel's prophecy is being fulfilled? Where is the Messiah? Yes, he has come. His name is Jesus. That's the one you have to put your faith in. They would hear that and think, that's not possible. Why? Barclay points out that the Old Testament says the following, Cursed be everyone who hangs on a tree. And this is important. The Old Testament, 1,500 years earlier, 1,500 years before what we're talking about. I'm assuming that crucifixion has not even been thought of in the mind of man at 1500 B.C., but God's already put in their laws, cursed be everyone who hangs on a tree. 
So for that reason, Barclay writes the following. This is key. He says, to the Orthodox Jew, the cross was the one fact which made it completely impossible that Jesus could be the Messiah. He can't be the Messiah. Why? Because of the cross. This is what the, the way they would think, and this is the way they would still think. He can't be the Messiah. Why? Because he died. He can't. The Messiah doesn't die. And furthermore, here's what they would say. Hold on, Peter. If this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is the Christ, then number one, why did he die? Number two, why did he die that way? Why did he die such an easy victim? Well, Jesus was not an easy victim. Jesus was a sacrifice for sin. I want your help for a moment. It helps if you have your Bible open. How did they get to this point? So they would think, here's what they would say. So Peter, yeah, listen, I'm with you. There was a time I first thought I saw what he was doing. I heard him preaching and teaching. Saw it myself. And people would probably think, there was a time I wondered, is he the Christ? And then even that grew more and more. It's like, I Honey, I think he might be the Christ. I think he may very well be the Christ. But then that grows more and more to, I am convinced he is the Christ. And people are just following around. Is Jesus going to be here? Is this the time? Is this it? But then these people would say this. But then he died. And he died by crucifixion. And so now we know whatever thoughts we had, he can't be the Christ. Because he died on the cross. Therefore, he's disqualified from being the Christ. But Peter wants them to stop thinking, wait, if he's the Christ, then why did he die? He now wants them to think, hold on, here's how I want you to think. Because he's the Christ, he had to die. Because he's the Christ, he had to die exactly the way that he did die. It had to happen that way. In fact, if you're taking notes, write this. Jesus' death does not disqualify him. He would want the Jewish people to know. It actually identifies him. He's wanting them to understand you need to go back and see all these 300 prophecies that are fulfilled by Jesus in the Old Testament. His death doesn't disqualify him. His death actually clearly identifies him and makes us know, oh, he's the one and only. It had to be him. He's the one who fulfills all the scriptures. And so after you've written that, I have an assignment I want you to do. Well, that's a long one. I better give you a moment. Because I want you to participate with me. And again, if you have your Bible, you only have two verses open in front of you for, for most of our message. Look down again at the whole passage. I know some of you finished in writing. So here's my question I want us to digest. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, by mighty works. I'm going to use the word miracles, wonders, and signs. And you know it. And you know it. And they did know it. No one refuted what Peter's saying. Skip down to what I'm going to call 23B. So verse 22. He did miracles, wonders, and signs. It was clear that God was doing this through him. And you know it. Yes, they did. He was This is a man attested by God. Confirmed. Validated by God. Now look at the second part. Again, verse 23b. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You instigated it. They carried it out. But you made it happen. I'm asking you guys this morning. So really think with me. 
How does it go from them seeing Jesus as verified, validated, confirmed, proven, attested, to killing him? How do we get from 22 to 23b? Him you crucified and killed. If this is true, and it was, Jesus was attested in their minds, then why do they end Not all of them. Why do some people, certain people were in two groups. Why is it that some people on Sunday are shouting, Hosanna! And they're putting their clothes and palm branches down in front of Jesus as he's riding into Jerusalem on Sunday. But some of that same crowd on Friday morning is shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! How do we get from 22 to 23b? How do you explain it? Say it, Victor. The deliberate plan. The only way you get these people to do what they do, they are zealous for their Messiah. Their Messiah is with them. He's going into Jerusalem. He's there all week. They know it's him. How did they get from 22 to 23B? The answer is 23A. That's how they got there. And it had to happen this way. So the key to today's message, and really one of the keys to the entire Pentecostal message, is verse 23A. Let's just spend a little time in that. You ready? And by the way, I'm going to go ahead and confess to you. If you pay attention... I'll promise you this. I can promise you this. If you will pay attention, you will finish today's message unsatisfied. I promise you. If you don't pay attention, you'll be like, oh, it's over. Oh, okay. Time to go. If you pay attention, you might finish today's message frustrated, unsatisfied, and still in an area confused. That's just where it is. So this is what we've got to do. Here we go. How do we get from 22A? Hosanna! Crucify. Key is 23A. Look at 23A. This man that's been attested to you by God, this Jesus, delivered up. Notice what he doesn't say. Allowed by. He doesn't say allowed by the definite plan of God and foreknowledge of God. He says, this man, this Jesus, delivered up. According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So what does this mean? Just hang with me for a moment. Definite plan. The definite plan of God. I want to propose to you the definite plan here means the predetermined plan of God. Everybody, you got to get it. Definite plan is what delivered him up. How did they get from here to here? Oh, it's because the definite, the predetermined plan of God, God's predetermined plan made it happen. And the foreknowledge of God. So we don't see this often, and I promise you I don't go out of my way to look for it, and we're not doing a deep dive today. Not doing a deep dive, but we're not going to ignore it. So there's quite a few people, and some are in this room right now. There's lots of people who are unsaved. Then there are some Christians Pay attention, put yourself in, which category are you? There are some Christians, they don't read their Bible, so they're never going to come across this word unless they go to a church that, like, works through the Bible. Because if you go to a church that doesn't work their way through the Bible and through books and don't skip, 
then it's easy to go to places. You will never hear this. You would never hear this. So there's some Christians, they don't read their Bible. There are other Christians, they read their Bible. But they don't read very thoughtfully. They would not even notice that word. They just, oh, blah, blah, blah. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan of foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. I've got to hurry up. got to be at work in a minute. Check, I had my devotions. Then there's going to be these people that are going to be like, well, what in the world is that? I ain't got time to look it up. But I'm just, well, that caught me. And they're going to keep moving. Then there's this group. They are reading thoughtfully, and they notice this word, and it catches their mind. What is this definite plan? And what is this foreknowledge? And so they pause, and they come up with their own version of the definition. And so they project their definition into the text. And then there's another group of people that does the same thing, but when they come across this word, they don't just put their definition into the text. They're like, wait a minute. What does the rest of the Bible make clear is the definition of this text? So I want us to be in that last group. We need to be in the last group. What is the foreknowledge of God? Now pay attention. If you will, I promise you'll be dissatisfied. (laughs) Some people's version of the foreknowledge of God is real simple. They take the prefix for, put it with knowledge, and here's their answer. The foreknowledge of God is where God knows all that will happen in advance. And then he plans accordingly. God knows what will happen because God's omniscient. God knows everything in advance before it happens. And because of his omniscience, he then responds accordingly. And that to them is the foreknowledge of God. You see it? Did you catch it? Because God knows everything. God knows that, hey, you are going to do that. So God says, I'll do that. Because I know you're going to do that, then I'll do this. Or because I know that all of you, this group of people is going to do this, then I'll do this. Is that what it means? If that's the case, then God's omniscience is driving his agenda. God's omniscience, where he knows all things, but he's kind of just letting it happen. He's not really part of causing anything, but he knows it's going to happen. And because I know that's going to happen, then I guess I'll do that. If that's your definition of the foreknowledge of God, then that would be incorrect. Now, let me throw this out. We're not preaching Romans today, though I will refer to it. When we put the definition of the foreknowledge of God in this passage, we need to be consistent with it in Romans 8.29. If you want to write that out a little side, Romans 8.29, 1 Peter 1, verse 2, and 1 Peter 1.20. So if we're going to come up with a definition, then we've got to make it apply to all of those. I'm going to read 1 Peter 1.20. Because it's a lot like Acts 2. I'm going to back up. You ready? Peter, in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, says, Knowing that you were were ransomed from the feudal ways, you're ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things. What, what, What were we ransomed by? Not with perishable things such as silver and gold. How much money did God have to pay to get me out of hell? It wasn't with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. That of, uh, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Here's verse 20. He was foreknown 
before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. He was made foreknown. Peter is again saying everything that happened to Christ, it's because God had foreknown it. So it didn't hit me till yesterday morning. This thought occurred to me based off of Acts, 22, Acts 2, 23, and 1 Peter 1, 20, the use of foreknown there, if, now here, I'm going to read it, ready? If foreknowledge only means to know in advance what's going to happen, then the whole plan of salvation rested completely on something that mankind initiated. Oh, I know what's going to happen when I send my son down there. It's, it's foreknown before the foundation of the world. I know what they're going to do to him. That's the way they are down there. But you just went along with it. Ah, I sent him. I knew it was going to happen. If foreknowledge only means to know in advance, then the whole plan of salvation rests on something mankind initiated, but God caught wind of it. I, because I'm omniscient, I know what they're going to do. But watch, because he's omniscient, knows what we're going to do, and God is loving. He says, you know what? Because I know what they're going to do, I'm going to take advantage of that little situation, and I'm going to actually use it for a plan of salvation. If that's how it went down, this is going to be very crude and borderline blasphemous. Then one day we're going to be sitting around cooking s'mores with God, and somebody's going to go, you know, Lord, in a wild, crazy way, we kind of get some of the credit for all this. And God will be like, what are you talking about, Willis? And that's when we'll be like, well, I know it sounds strange, but we are the ones that killed Jesus. And thank you, your love and, and grace and mercy played on it. And thank you that you didn't withdraw him, knowing what we were going to do. But we kind of kicked the whole thing off. I guess we're kind of 50-50. To which God goes, have you lost your mind? No. 70-30. No. 70-30. 70-30. And God's like, no. No. 80-20. No. 90-10. 90-10. I'll give you 90-10. You guys did start it. That's where you're going to end up if that's your definition. In a weird, twisted way, we kind of kicked the whole thing off. These people. But that's not what it means. Would you write this down? It's real simple. Foreknowledge means so much more than to know in advance. What does it mean? It means that God knows all things far in advance because he foreordained them. He foreordained. God's foreknowledge is his foreordination. It's not just I knew in advance. Oh, they're going to do that? Well, I guess I won't stop it. No, God foreordained this. That's what foreknown means. And remember the little references you wrote at the side. Since that's what it means clearly in Acts 2 and in verse. Peter 1.20, then you have to take that same application and apply it to Romans 8.29 and 1 Peter 1.2, which says, whom, whom, for whom, the person that God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. The book of 1 Peter is written to those that are the elect who have been 
elected according to the foreknowledge. So you got I'm not preaching that today. I'm just saying you got to apply the same definition. It's not just, well, I know what's going to happen. No, God is foreordaining these things. And that's why when we listen to a song that says, by grace, yeah. Yeah, we did. It wasn't 90-10. It's 100% and zero. Thank you. We just take it. All right, moving on. This is proven over and over. This is God's plan. Now, I'm getting ready to do something that's going to be a little confusing. I'm telling you this is God's plan, and then I'm going to talk about how wicked man is. Look at Acts chapter th- Acts 3. You're in chapter 2. Look at Acts 3. This is a theme that keeps running. Acts 3, look at verse 18. This is that preaching in the temple. Peter and John, that's out in the wide open air. Verse, chapter 3, verse 18. But, God, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Who do you think the he is there? God. Look at verse 18. What God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he fulfilled it. God fulfilled it. Flip over to chapter 4. Look at verse 28. Chapter 4, verse 28. The context here is that they are now in front of the Sanhedrin and Peter is talking to them and he says, back up in verse 27, truly in this city there were gathered to... No, no, I'm sorry. This is a prayer of a group of Christians after the apostles were released from being the Sanhedrin. They're praying to this God and they're saying to the, to the Lord, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, the peoples of Israel, Watch verse 28. To do whatever your hand. Why did they all come against? They did whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This this all happened according to your determined plan. God's predetermined plan. Chapter 13. Luke, Peter's not the saying, Boy, that Peter guy, he really digs in when he gets going. Paul preaches the same thing. Paul in Acts chapter 13. Chapter 13, look at verse 29. Paul says, and when they carried out, he's telling this group of Gentiles, and when they had carried out, I'm sorry, this was in a Pisidian Antioch synagogue. It's not Gentiles, though some are present. I'll preach on that later when we get there in another year or so. Chapter 29, and when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. These Jews are doing all of this, and these Romans are helping carrying it off. They have no clue. They're just checking them off one by one by one by one. Dozens within an 18-hour period, dozens of Old Testament prophecies, they're just clicking them off one after another. They have no clue they're fulfilling the plan. If they did, they would have stopped. They would not have done this to their Messiah. They're just fulfilling it. Why? Because of the predetermined plan of God is going to happen. has to happen. Now back to Acts 2, quickly. Verse 22, a man attested to you by God. Verse 23, you crucified and killed. What does that illustrate for us? That shows the total depravity of mankind. Think about that, ladies and gentlemen, think about that. The all-time, the one and only truly completely sinless person in the history of the world, came to earth, lived here. Now, hear hear my adjectives. Listen. He lived the single most selfless, loving, 
helpful life. Nobody's ever helped people like Jesus helped. Nobody's ever been more selfless than him, more loving. He lived the most selfless, loving, helpful life in the history of the world. And what happened? We killed him, but we didn't just kill him. We killed him by the most cruel way of death that's ever been invented. The best life ever ever received the worst death ever. How does that happen? Write it down. God himself, God himself came and lived among us for 33 years. And what happened to him? Religious people killed him. Religious people crucified. That is the depravity of man. She said, Jeff, what do you mean by that? Don't you think that people were basically good, were good creatures who do bad things? Oh, I say the opposite. We are at our core, basically, in the basic, in the base, we are wicked, evil people left to ourselves who, by God's grace, every now, and, every now and then do some good things. And then when we become God's children, then we are no longer sinners. His Holy Spirit lives in us, and He uses us to do great things, but all by Him. Left to ourselves, we always choose sin. You say, I just don't believe that. Look at verse 22. Couldn't be more clear who He is. Best life, most selfless, most loving, most helpful. What are we going to do with him? We're going to crucify him. Worst death ever. I'm still in verse 23. This needs touched on. What I'm about to say may be the most important thing for several of you this morning. It's simple. Not all things, watch, got all these things. Not all things are good. There's a lot of stuff we call bad things. That's bad, that's bad. Not all things are good. But the Bible in the New Testament, especially in Romans 8, 28, teaches us, and it's illustrated in Acts 2, not all things are good of themselves. That is not good. That's bad. Not all things are good of themselves, but God has an amazing ability to take all things, even the worst things, and ultimately turn them and use them for some mysterious great thing. This is illustrated here. This is horrible. You crucified and killed the Christ. But God has this ability to take... All things, even the things that of themselves are not good, and even in this case, the worst sin of all time, God has turned it for our good and His glory. Literally, only God could do this. All things are useful. Like you say, but I, there's some things that aren't good. Yeah, there's a lot of things happen here that's not good. All things can be taken by God's wisdom, His love, and His power. He's willing to do this. He's very wise, and he has the power. He's able to take all things, even the worst of things, turn them literally for our good and his glory. And all of us who've been in church for a while, you know what? We believe that. But here's what I need you to do. Write that very quickly, because here's what I need you to do. I want you to think of that thing in your life I want you to think of that thing in your life. Everybody do it. What's that thing or things in your life? Pick one or two of the worst. That if you were completely in control of your life, 
that would not exist in it. You'd, you'd say, if I could take anything out, that I would take out right now. Think of those things. Think of that thing. Because based on the truth that we just read, I want to ask you this question. What if, as unwanted, or even as despised, and I'm comfortable based on Hebrews 12 too, using the word despised. You know, Jeff, there's a thing in my life, I despise it. What if that unwanted, even despised thing that's in your life is actually part of God's bigger plan and he will bring good from it, good for you, and glory to himself? What if we were to like take it not just, yeah, oh, I see what God did in Jesus' life. What if we were to take it and say, you know what, this is my life too. What would that do to us? I think it would build our faith and I think it would give us hope. And it would give us some joy even. And we'd see some purpose like by faith. I don't see the purpose now. But if God did that in this case. And we know by Romans 8.28 he does that in all cases. It doesn't take the pain away. still hurts like crazy. But now it's like. If I didn't get anything else. I got that right there. God can take every nasty despised thing in my life. And he's going to do something with it. He has a reason. And I'm going to rest in that. And it hurts like crazy. And God, I'm begging you to take it away. But if you don't, I have faith. You have a great plan. You have a predetermined plan. Quickly look at Matthew 22, 26. I'm sorry. Matthew 26. Matthew 26. We're talking about the determined plan of God and and foreknowledge of God. It's the upper room. It's just hours before Jesus will be arrested. He's with all 12 of his disciples. You'll not see it on the screen, but verse 21, if you have your Bible, you'll see it. This is kind of an eerie thing every time I read this setting. They're doing the Last Supper. As they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Hey, guys. One of you is going to betray me. And so they start asking. And the question here is, is like, is, is it I? Is it I? Is it I? Is, it's designed, the, the way it's worded is, it's, it's not me, is it, Lord? And they're all asking it. Now watch verse 23, because you'll see it on the screen. Watch it. He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. Apparently that didn't narrow it down to just Judas. Apparently, it meant that those who were close enough to like, hey, we didn't have to pass it down there. They're dipping in the same bowl, and they're dipping in the same. It's somebody that's right near him, and he's just said, and they're all asking, is it I, is it I? And I watch verse 23. Jesus says, hours before, probably like three hours before he's going to be arrested in the garden, he answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Did you catch the first part of verse 24? Here's what he said. Hey, the Son of Man goes as it has been written of him. What's been written, what, what's been determined in eternity past by me and the Father and the Spirit, when it made it into the plan and it's been prophesied, it's going to happen. It is going, this is happening. But woe to the one 
who makes it happen. That stands on its own, but in my mind, I'm wondering, was that a warning? Judas, you know what you've already done. You've already met them, and y'all have talked about money. You know what's in your heart right now, but you need to know. Again, verse 24, it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. What's in your heart, you think it's going to end well for you. Whatever you have in your heart, it ends horribly for you. What's, what's been written is going to happen to me. The predetermined plan of God is going to happen. You need to make sure you're not the one that makes it happen. Be sure you're not the one that's going to make it happen. I know from Scripture, and I don't delight in saying this, I'm confused by this. Heaven or hell? Heaven or hell? Biblically, which one's going to have more people in it? Hell. Listen. The vast majority of people are going to end up in eternal punishment. So what do people need to do with that knowledge? This is going to happen. This is going to happen. What do people need to do with that knowledge? Warn people. What precedes that? What, who said that? Say it again. Make sure you're not one of them. This is going to happen. The vast majority of people are going to hell. And I hate to say that. Your response must be, I want to make sure I'm not one of them. How do you do that? I'm looking for two words. Believe, believe in Jesus. Trust Jesus. Trust Jesus. I'm telling you what's going to happen. You're in Matthew 26 still. So here's what blows our minds. Now watch. Everybody, watch. This is a key. Jesus had to die for sin. He had to die for sin. Can I say it this way? We needed him to die for sin. Does this make sense? We love him. We don't want him to have to die for sin, but we want him to die for sin. We don't want him to die for sin, but we do want him to die for sin because we need him to die for sin. He had to die for sin. Otherwise, we are going to spend eternity entangled in death and sin. So it had to happen. Now, here's where we're going. With that knowledge, Judas and the chief priests fulfilled very specific roles predetermined by God that made it happen. We need it to happen. We want it to happen, but we don't want it, but we want it to happen. It has to happen. They took steps, very specific, fulfilled roles, predetermined by God that made it happen. Write it down. And yet, all of that does not absolve their guilt. You say, wait a minute, Jeff. It ended up helping us. God predetermined like the day, the exact order, the who, the where, the how. Every detail is part of the predetermined plan of God. Then how can they still be at fault? 
because they sinned. They're not relieved. They're not absolved of guilt. I'm not preaching Romans 8 and 9. But when you go home confused, go home and read Romans 8 and 9 this next week, about once a day, slowly. And here's what you'll find. I'm not, I'm not joking, guys, for real. Here's what you'll find. You remember Pharaoh in the Old Testament? You know what the Bible said about him? The Bible says God, God raised up Pharaoh, made him powerful, put him in his position with the children of Israel, God's people underneath Egypt. So here, the African nation Egypt has God's people as their slaves, and God raised up this specific Pharaoh. Here comes Moses, God's man, says, let our people go. Let God's people go. And God hardens his heart. He hardens his heart. He tells Moses, no, God sends down a plague, softens him up. He's ready to negotiate, but at the last minute, hardens his heart again. God hardens his heart. No. This happens over and over and over so that ten, God sends ten plagues. The ultimate purpose is God says, oh, I raised him up to power so that I could show I have more power than any man on earth. Now, that's true. That is what happened. And God crushed that guy and his country. But what Romans 9 teaches is on the day of judgment, that Pharaoh cannot say, hey, I don't deserve judgment. I was only doing what God predetermined I would do. I was only doing the role you made me do. You're the one that made me. It's your fault. Will not work. You say, why not? Because he's responsible for his sin. Now I'm coming down the home stretch. So here's my question. You got to get it. Did God only have a deliberate plan for Jesus? Now hang with me. Is this what happened? God, seeing man's simple condition, we know now it wasn't like, hey, I know what you're going to do, so I'll do this. No. He foreordained it for, in his foreknowledge, his predetermined plan. But is God's predetermined plan, was it only for Jesus? Did it go like this? I'm going to send my son, and I'm going to have all these things happen, and he's going to pay for sin, and I'm going to accept that as a payment for sin, and I'm going to leave them with this promise. Verse 21 of Acts 2, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There, sin has been paid. I've given him my promise. My work is done. Let's see what happens. I'm going to leave. Now it's up to you. Is that what happened? Oh, yeah, God has a predetermined plan. The predetermined plan was only for Jesus. I'm not preaching Romans 8 and 9, but Romans 8 and 9 make it very clear. No, he didn't just have a plan just for Jesus. He also has a plan for all things. So now we're about to finish with two notes that are going to not make sense to us. But it's what we have. So the answer is, everybody with me? Watch. you gotta, you got to feel it. Here's the answer. Jeff, do you believe there is a predetermined plan for all things? Jeff, do you believe that it's not been left to chance? Jeff, do you believe that nothing has been left for chance? Yes. There is a predetermined plan. Y'all know Bible prophecy? 
Bible prophecy, that whole dynamic, that whole phenomenon, you know what it is? It's windows into the predetermined plan. It's real. There is a predetermined plan for all things. Nothing's been left to chance. But before you start sitting there thinking, then I'm just a little side character programmed into a video game. Every time the game's played, I do this. Put your hands up. Oh, you got me again. Same thing. Over. I'm just a little pre-programmed little side character in a video game. No, don't think that way. Because along with that, there is a predetermined plan, but there's this other mysterious fact. Write it down. God allows people to make choices that they are responsible for. God allows people to make real choices, real people. You are a real person. You're going to make real choices. You have been making real choices. You are having real actions. And I'll challenge you, if you were to go home and think about that little sentence you're writing, those little two parts, wait a minute. There is a predetermined plan, and yet with that, God has created people who are making real choices and they're responsible for their real choices. Oh, absolutely. Now, write that one quickly because I'm going to write the same thing. You're going to write the same thing. It's slightly different because this is so true. In the New Testament, the New Testament regularly, repeatedly, I'm going to say almost every time where you see one of these things, where you see this, what I've been talking about today, this predetermined plan of God, very close to it, you're going to see this other aspect. Write this down. The New Testament regularly places two paradoxical dynamics side by side. They're too confusing for our little minds. There's a reason this doesn't make sense to us. The two paradoxical dynamics are the following. Number one, the complete sovereignty of God over all things. Over all things. God is completely, nothing's catching him by surprise. Nothing is not part of the plan. The complete sovereignty of God over all things is placed beside, over and over in the New Testament, beside the responsibility of every man for their decisions and their actions. We're responsible. And you're making real decisions, real actions. It's my last paragraph and I'll be done. Was the crucifixion predetermined by God? Yes. Every detail. The predetermined plan of God for the crucifixion. Next question. Did God bring good out of Jesus' crucifixion? Yes, it was predetermined. And yes, God brought good out of it. But even though those two things are true, those who caused it are not absolved of their guilt. And we say, Jeff, what? I don't understand. If they, it was predetermined, that and that and that, and why are they not guiltless in this? It's kind of like MacArthur writes. He says, quote, men are responsible for God, not responsible for God's plans. Hear it again. Men are not responsible for God's plans, but for their own sins. You're not responsible for God's plans. You're responsible for your sins. But this has got, don't worry about that. You're responsible for your sins. So I conclude here. Still in the last paragraph. 
Jeff, is something bigger going on underneath my decisions? Yes. But your actions matter and your decisions matter and they affect your eternity. Your purpose in life is not to try to figure out all that God is doing that you do not know yet. Your purpose in life is to respond in obedience to God's clear plan that you do know. That's what I'm leaving you with. Your purpose in life is not to try to figure out all that God is doing that you don't know. Your purpose in life is to respond in obedience to God's clear plan, God's clear offer that you do know. What's God doing? Okay. You do what you've been called to do and you respond in obedience to what God offers and you'll be glad. I promise you'll be glad. So what is that? Mainly twofold. Number one, many are going to end up in hell. Make sure that is not you. Put your faith and trust in Christ. And then, because we know the offer, the command of God, respond in obedience to this. Get saved by trusting Jesus only. Jesus, I'm confessing my sin to you. I'm putting my total faith and trust in you only. By grace, I'm receiving salvation. But then spend your life making disciples. Get saved. Spend your life making disciples. And it's going to end up beautifully. And you will praise God throughout eternity. I promise you. Raise your hand if you say, Jeff, by God's grace, I'm already born again. I am a Christian. I'm so thankful. Is that you? Now, let's hold your hand up. Only hold your hand if there's a time in your life where you have confessed your sins to, to Christ. And you're like, had this conversation. I am putting my full faith and trust in you. Then here's your takeaway. Two, go make disciples and give thanks to God that you are a recipient of his grace. And then when you have those parts of your life where I despise that, just know that God is so wise and so loving and so powerful. He is going to use even that, though you don't see how in the world. And it doesn't take the pain away now, but you just by faith, I know he has a purpose, and this gives me great hope. Wow, if he did that in Christ's life, he's doing something great in mine, even in the dark parts. Let's stand. Father, we thank you for your great plan. You're a fearful being. You're very fearful. You're very powerful. Your ways are high above us. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge that you have. It's just bottomless. We have very finite minds. We don't understand we want to start accusing you of being unfair. and We'd be so wrong to do that. We don't see everything. Lord, I thank you. Lord, I thank you. God, thank you for what you did for me in 1979. You let me hear the gospel and you gave me faith to trust Christ. Lord, I thank you that almost 200 people just raised their hand that said they've had that time in their life too. Lord, I pray that's true. I pray that's true. If so... Lord, would you put it in our hearts to respond obediently to the call for all believers to be personal evangelists. And we all need to train for that. And so, Lord, 
Let us put feet in obedience to your call. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.